1: Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is the E2 podcast, Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Quick admin announcement. You can now find us on our new website, e two e2podcast.ca. You'll find all available episodes, more information on our guests, and you can get in touch with us via our feedback page. More at e2podcast.ca. Support for E2 is brought to listeners in part by IrisTel, offering better Canadian telecom solutions. With IrisTel Business Solutions, companies can streamline their communications and reduce complexity, give employees better resources. Visit iristel.com solutions for more info. That's I-R-I-S-T-E-L dot solutions. And the Entrepreneurs Organization and the local chapter in Toronto. Are you a founder of a growing business? EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. EO members are provided with a continuous cycle of peer-to-peer networking opportunities, monthly forum meetings, and world-class learning events. For more info on joining EO, visit eotoronto.ca and click Apply. Today is my conversation with Andrea Matheson. Andrea is a scale expert, a multi-exit entrepreneur with over 25 years of experience in technology and operations across several business sectors. She has built three startups from zero to successful exit, including Proponics, which grew from zero to 175 million in just 24 months. Andrea is also largely credited for helping one of the biggest telecom companies in Canada navigate through Y2k. So in this one we get into Andrea's experience as a scale expert, her advice with respect to any fast scaling business, why hiring for mindset and attitude trump's skill set every time, the importance of balance and how to avoid burnout the centralization of personal healthcare, and the failure of Google Health, and much more. So without delay, please enjoy this very wide-ranging and informative chat with Andrea Matheson. Rewinding back to the 90s, when you got into tech, This is a time period where, well, I mean, there'll be many listeners that don't really understand what Y2K or what the Y2K conversion was all about. There was so much uncertainty around it. What was it like to get that request to just take that on? And what were you wrestling with uh, in terms of leading that initiative?
1: Yeah, it is an interesting one. Actually, Tony Lacavere recently said that I led Bell Canada into the internet age, and I had never thought of it as that. At the time, I thought, wow, this is pretty uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen. The whole notion, and maybe for the listeners that wouldn't know, the notion was that at the stroke of midnight, (laughs) December 31st, 1999, moving into January 1st, 2000, there was a possibility, some perception that the numbers would transfer over and all hell would break loose virtually (laughs) across the world um, on technology infrastructure. And now to think back on how absurd that could be, um, I didn't believe that would happen. So I think I I went in naively thinking, how could that possibly happen? We have too many smart people in this world. And I still say that we have so many smart people. We we can figure this out. It can't possibly be that hard. But it also, it really was a call to action for most legacy businesses to get a hold of very old technology that they'd basically been band-aided for years and years and years. Nothing like what we have today, of course, because things were so cumbersome and large and and very complicated. We made them that way back in the day, not not that we do that today as much, but that certainly was the... um, The way it was then. And so, you know, Y2K was an opportunity, really, for those businesses to say, you know what, we better put some money aside and actually modernize, you know, at least some of our infrastructure and make sure nothing happens on our watch to, you know, the actual dates, you know, the dates of uh, pieces of data. Uh, the actual date, like literally January 1st, 2000, causing some havoc in the in the air otherwise. And, and then other things just like uh, motors not being able to work and, you know, doomsday people talking about it all over the world. So it was a big deal. But I was naive to say, we can't possibly have this problem. So, but if we do, we should at least, pre- you know, prepare and um, risk mitigate against it. So I really looked at
0: it from that standpoint. Do you see some parallels with respect to the narrative of y2k and what's going on today with ai and quantum computing and everything else
1: i do i do and i think again you know it's just the fear of the unknown mm-hmm. i really think that's a big part of it i'm speaking to some people the other day and they were they literally like had me you know sit in the chair and grab my hand and said andrea it's going to be okay right <laughs> we're, we're all going to be you know we're, we actually will have some productive work to do and i'm like absolutely there's actually some really great work that will have to be done, but we don't want to do, you know, there's some things we, we shouldn't be doing. And so, I mean, we should have probably not been doing them 10 years ago, but this will give us again, that opportunity to start looking at things that, you know, we have humans doing today that maybe they don't need to do any longer and could use their brain in a different way. Um, and we, and there's some great examples of what that, what that looks like, but, you know, it's this fear that people say, but it's something out there. And so I've got a couple of books that I continuously, um, send the links to on uh, for people to understand blockchain prediction, you know AI and pr- really a prediction machine and and how that works because it's just that fear and I said, you can prepare now, you can start you know learning it now and see how you can fit into it. Versus trying to say no, no, don't show me anything. <laughs> I'll wait for it to all happen, and a lot of that was Y2K.
0: So many lessons to draw, and probably from your experience with Bell Y2K. So mm-hmm. let's come back to that for a second. So very, very high praise with respect to Tony Lacavera saying that you helped lead Bell into the uh, mm-hmm. the internet age. That's that's amazing how did you get into entrepreneurship after that i know you started or were involved with a company called proponix give listeners Mm -hmm. just a sense of what that company was solving and what your role was
1: proponix is a paperless cloud-based system that manages the entire trade finance flow of information so when uh the example is sears US wants to buy basketball, mean, that's not such a good example since they're not doing as well. But let's talk about Walmart, Walmart wanting to buy basketballs for all of other Walmarts around the world. They probably put an order into somewhere in like Taiwan, Taiwan or China. And there's a letter of credit that's created that says we'd like, you know, 1000 basketballs. And in order for you to ma- manufacture those basketballs for us, here's a letter of credit that says that we have the money to pay for those when you're finished, when you're finished, that letter of credit will be paid just as it would an invoice. Think of it more of its purchase order. And uh, it will be paid, and it's a guarantee, if you will. And banks provide those um, guarantees. So the three banks that were involved were Bank of Montreal out of uh, Canada, Barclays Bank UK out of London, England, and ANZ Bank out of Sydney, Australia. So they had always uh, envisioned some way that they would be able to make this a paperless business. So Proponix solved that problem because what would happen is it was very paper-based, very laborious, many, many people involved. And as you can imagine, a piece of paper falling between a crack of a desk would mean that somebody wouldn't get paid. For all of these goods moving all over the world every day so it had been a big problem it had in the trade finance is one of the largest uh, one of the oldest areas i should say in financial services it dates back to the middle ages and it's pretty fascinating when you start to look at it but what they saw was all this paper and it was long before we thought about paperless when i you know started looking at it i saw it no different than y2k an opportunity to really go in and lay a new foundation for a business so we didn't really think of it as a startup mm-hmm. back then it was, it was kind of funny we didn't think of it as that we said is this an opportunity to build something that would you know really make a difference in the way that business was done
0: this vision for proponics starts at say ground 0 and then you grow to something short of 200 million in just under 24 months or something like that how did you guys okay. grow so fast and is that correct that those numbers that i just gave
1: yeah so 0 to 175 million dollars us in 730 days two years, literally almost to the day. So we were probably within seven, you know, it's probably 729. If I really counted it out, I'd have to check. Uh, we turned the, we turned the key and everything worked and we had Toronto as our head office, um, Melbourne as our, um, secondary office. So when Toronto shut down, processing finished here, Australia would start. So we had full 24, seven, um, operation and, uh, on three continents. We were, Canada, we were in Australia, and we were also in Hong
0: Kong. Wow! China. So, so, so as, awesome. as you scaled, like, what are the, um, if you could distill it down to like a few bullet points for listeners, like, what were the key things that made this business grow so quickly for you guys?
1: I know people like to talk about the beginning and at the end. What I like to talk about is the messy middle,
0: which is mm. the part in
1: between, and that messy middle relates to the things that are really fundamental to, to scaling a business. And this is what I spend my time on now. Um, Adam is helping other entrepreneurs uh, understand what it takes. It takes, you know, there's a few key things that I talk about. First of all, simplicity. You have to do what you do today. Make the foundation, stabilize the business. And then, and then build on top of it. You cannot, and it's never the belief, but a lot of people do think it literally, somebody started one day and then 10 days from now, it was 10 million. And then, uh, you know, 30 days from then it was a hundred million. It doesn't work like that. There's actually foundational pieces that have to be put in place. So the simplicity of doing what you do well today as a small operation, And you know, we were five people, we were six people, 10 people sitting in basically one room, mm-hmm. <laughs> Doing it. That's a different business than at the end of 730 days with three locations on three continents and many people, <laughs> many more people involved. So, you know, you start from those those early days and do everything you can to do it well and simply when you start. So always looking for ways to reduce distractions. Uh, eliminate them if you can and then just do what you do well and everybody empowered to do while you brought them into the business right so to bring that so they can contribute everything to to the um to the cause from day one so i talk about stabilizing is really important your financial forecast making sure everybody's on the same page which means communication communication a feedback loop You know, has to be established what makes sense for the people who are involved, not the one that you read about yesterday across the hall from you or down, you know, down the street from you. What works for the people that are involved in what you are doing? Okay, they may prefer you know, live or or face-to-face or audio, whatever it is, you, you know, establish that, but get that established because as things start to move and the pace quickens, we need to make sure everybody is kept up, you know, in the loop of what's happening so that they can continue to contribute at the level that you want them to. So So I talk about stabilizing, uh, selling, and then solving. Those are my three keys to the scale.
0: In terms of stabilizing communication, you're Mm -hmm. talking specifically about internal or you also talking about external communication as well?
1: I'm talking mostly about internal. Mm -hmm. If you get the internal right, it'll be a lot easier to do external. So when people start marketing and other and saying things out on, uh, you know, into the public domain and it doesn't match what's actually happening in the organization, you're going to have problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That business is not going to scale as successfully or as easily as it had. If you focused more on your internal, make sure everybody's on the same page. And then I don't have to worry about who's saying what. They're all saying the same thing, and they can do a lot more of the external communications on your behalf, and without the founders having to worry about you know what's being said. But if you spend more money on the outside and not as much investing in your people inside, that will be a problem. And uh, the financial health of the business is really key. So making sure the forecasts are correct, and I actually in many cases uh, tell entrepreneurs they should have a third party take a look at it. Because not necessarily the people who are building that business will be the ones who are the best at looking at what that financial health will be as you move through large incremental change and growth of that business. So, so
0: when somewhere. you work with startups today and they, and they say, Andrea, I do want to bounce this off of a third party, who mm-hmm. do you recommend that I show this to? What do you say?
1: I think there's a couple of options. I think there's uh, generally somebody else. If it's a, you know, say that they're working on an outsource basis and they have like an accountant and, and they possibly have, you know, notice to reader um, statements, not full audited statements, it would be good to have another CA or another CA firm take a look at those statements and then do, you know, what I would say. Suggest is it just a a shortened or a mini audit on the numbers that are represented to know that they actually make sense and where are those you know where where did they come from? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one option. The other is if they're uh, you know moving at that kind of a pace, they probably have some investors that have access to resources and investors love to help. And I say here's one of the ways they can help: you put a call out to them and say, "Listen, we're about you know we're as you know our plans are this, that, and the other thing." We'd love to have a third party take a look at our financial, you know, our forecasting, our cash flow statements, those kind of things, and do have somebody to recommend. I assure you that every one of them will give you somebody to recommend because they'd love to be part of that process, and I think that also builds trust. It, you know, encourages more trust in that relationship to say that I'm okay with somebody else coming in and taking a look at this, which is one of the famous things that founders sometimes, you know, hold on too tightly.
0: Okay, so so jumping to selling, sell, is um, sell. mm-hmm. selling's obvious what were you guys doing in terms of sales strategy and the the landscape for selling and what channels you were using to drive revenue was probably different back then um what were you guys doing that was effective and are there still patterns and lessons that startups and technology companies can apply today in terms of selling,
1: absolutely. We um, so we, we thought of all kinds of things, and you know, and that's very typical in a in a uh, startup or uh, growing business. That everybody comes up with a new idea. What about this? What about that? And you know, really, what we settled on, and why we were so successful, is we thought we have three banks as shareholders. Mm. Hmm. Why don't we just go to more banks? Clearly, if we can sell to these three banks, we can sell to many more banks. So you know, in the selling part, it was, and which is what I tell entrepreneurs: say you're doing something really well. Take what you're doing well and do more of it. Mm. Don't think about new, innovative channels. What about this? What about that? Because it almost takes a startup-esque effect to do that. It's like starting another business. Mm. And aren't you trying to just grow this business to you know and and get out the gate and get you know to um, to get break even and pass break even and profitable and all that? Do what you do really well and do more of it. And sometimes it's pricing. A lot of it is pricing too. People just price too low. So I usually look at their pricing first and then talk about, okay, we got the right price. Just sell more of it. Let's go sell more of it. And that's what we did. We simply sold to other banks.
0: What if companies don't know what sales channels would be most effective for their product or service? How would you suggest that they experiment?
1: They do need to experiment. So, and the, the definition, we we actually haven't come to that is talking about the definition, what I, I think of as scale is, that's a business, a, a company that is starting to scale is one that already has a working business model.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they've got a product and they figured out how to make money out of it. So they've likely got one channel tested.
0: Makes sense. So we, we talked about simplicity and foundation, mm-hmm. stabilization yeah. of communication, selling, we touched on. Uh, in terms of solving, it sort of feels like the solving piece is connected, obviously, to each of these, but but mostly connected to the first bullet point on simplicity and foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean by solving?
1: I mean that things will break. You cannot build. There's no one person. Facebook. It doesn't matter who uses the example. They did not. It was not a straight line. It was not perfect. There were lots of things that happened along the way. But more importantly, when you start to build quickly and gain momentum things will break. And one of the key things is you've got to, you know, be open to finding the resolution to those things as they happen. And the only way that you can do that is really about the people that are involved in that business. So if you get there and things start breaking, you think, Oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, something hasn't happened along the way. So we have to think of what's our team who can help us with this. If we don't have the right resources or we need additional resources, where's the gap, go and find those people bring those into the, into the tent with us and see what we can do there. And, and that's really the point around, you know, you're not going to, this will not be easy. It's, it's a marathon. And why is it a marathon? Because every step of the way you're trying to not get into trouble and not trip over your feet uh, and yet still stand at the very end of it. And the way to do that is to really have the right team. And this is where I talk about, you know, salt problems only get solved with the right people who have the right attitude it's not even the right skills. Yeah. I'm a big believer it's mindset first. I will you know, nine times, 10 times, almost 10 times out of 10, hire the person who's got the right attitude over what skills they have. But I know I can I can find somebody who can teach them or they can learn it because they. it's very adjacent to something else they've learned or, or whatever the case may be. But that mindset is really key and we need as, m- as many people as possible who want to explore answers. Uh, versus sit around and wait for the answers to come to them.
0: This theme comes up time and again on the podcast. Honestly, we've spoken really? to so many entrepreneurs and business owners who are hiring purely based on attitude and culture fit over what's on a resume and mm-hmm. skill set. It, it's really amazing. And I guess now now is we're sort of at, at a unique time where, where it's basically easy to, to learn just about any skill. And yeah, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. In terms of the messy middle and the problem solving and things breaking down what was the toughest challenge for you guys as you grew
1: i was in melbourne uh two of my founders were in hong kong and one was in toronto Mm -hmm. on a call at probably my time in melbourne because they would generally work to what was happening we'd work on the furthest time zone and so we get on this call and literally dead silence. no one is speaking i'm like anybody there like it's the right time, right? We're on the call, like it's like you and I right now, and like nothing, and no one's saying anything, and everybody being on mute. And, I, and uh, John uh, uh, Kwong was his name, a uh, sales sales guy. He he said, "I don't know if it's going to make it anymore." I said, "What's what's what's not going to make it?" I would not even think they were talking about the business. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" So this would have been about uh, twelve months in, probably around fourteenth month, something in there. We started our our first testing group with live data, not not data um, testing, like literally live data. So we were moving people's money around and transactions happening. And it was just, you know, they will well, what's wrong? Like, what's wrong? But they couldn't see through what was going on right at that moment. Hmm. And, and it's, the, it's the next thing that I talk about to entrepreneurs, and it was part of the solve piece that we just, we were talking about that, is in the end, it's about you. It's hmm. about, it was about every one of us getting out of our own way. Because we thought on that call, was going to be the only four of us that was going to make this happen. And that was the moment where I went, Oh my God, we're all thinking that we have to find the answer. We've got, you know, I don't know, at that point, probably 120 people. I said, we've got 120 people. We don't have to sit here on this call trying to figure it out. It's about you getting out of your way as a founder and letting the people who you brought in and trust invest in the people more than the ideas of, you know, you trying to figure it out yourself.
0: Do you remember what was going on in the business at the time? I mean, in terms of the actual challenge. So I, I, I'd imagine you've got revenues, right? The business is growing. Um, but what made, sorry, who remind me his name that the guy that said, I don't know if this is going to work. John Quan. Yeah. John. Quang. So, yeah. so yeah. Mm-hmm. when John says this, uh-huh. why, what, what were the circumstances that brought on that statement? The
1: pressure was from the shareholders, of course. Right. They start to see numbers and they, and they want to see more. And so, and a lot of founders will tell you that all of a sudden their investors are, are, can I drop in the office more often? You know, maybe I'll come by tomorrow at 10, you know, cause they want to see what's happening and, and want to be part of it. And the, this, the stress of all of that happening, you're negotiating, you know, not only you're managing expectations of the people doing the work and, and saying, and letting them see the vision and continuing to sell the vision to them and make sure they're coming along, but then you've got investors who are, uh, you know, basically breathing down your neck going, wow, you know, we think this is going to work. And, uh, you know, is this going to be billion dollars? And you're like, you know, I just need to get through the next three days while <laughs> I know the servers are all up and working, you know, <laughs> like I, I'm at that level and they're asking if it's going to be billion dollars and what are they going to cash out for and all of those things. Right. And that's why it can be very distracting, as you're doing it and it's just the weight of all of those things crashing in and making sure the financials are representing what you think they will and as a management team you still have to do you have to build the you know the fundamental business and keep that going while you're scaling Mm. there's a lot going on it's very very stressful and that's where i I speak with hunters and they're like oh i'm working like 72 hours straight and i'm like, "Whoa." Your business is gonna go down. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm putting more hours in. I'm like, no, you're not you're putting you're you're right, you're putting the hours in, but you're not putting in the right hours. Because mm. there's no way you're gonna be able to scale that business and not get sleep. Like it just does not work that way. These are all myths. The ones who actually make it are the ones who actually slept, worked fewer hours, you know, actually know their children's names <laughs> and were part of the you know, birthday party with their kids, whatever. Those are the pieces along the way. But the pressure does, you know, as much as the momentum gains the pressure, you know, gets higher and higher and higher. So the the trick is to get ahead of it and try to get as many outlets in your life <laughs> to be able to get you through the end to the end of the marathon, right?
0: Did you get that balance right?
1: I did. I, I did a lot of time shifting initially. I learned how to balance more towards the end <laughs> of my second
0: mm-hmm.
1: entrepreneurial adventure. It takes a while to figure out what will work best for you, right? And it's always about what works for your you and your family. And but what it doesn't include is saying, well, you know, this is what works. I will be on my phone at all times when I'm at home, even though my phone's on 24/7. I've I've lived 24/7. We've had operations that ran 24/7, but I can assure you, my phone has not rang in crazy hours unless it was truly life or death. And I've only ever had one of those in my entire career. So people have this really weird feeling that they, they're indispensable and somebody must be able to get a hold of them.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: What was that yeah. What was that one, that moment, that life or death call that you got?
1: The one, uh, it was actually with um, CGI when I was um, uh, managing the, the uh, Y2K. Uh-huh. So one of our en- engineers actually fainted in the elevator. Um, and then as the door opened on the ground level, he passed away right
0: there. Oh my God.
1: It was really sad. Yeah. So they did come to, uh, you know, I was in a meeting cause they couldn't, I wasn't thinking of my phone cause I was running a meeting in Montreal and they came to, you know, of course they know where I am. They, you know, everybody knows where you are today anyway. So it's never a big deal about that. If somebody can get to you. They came running. And knocked on the door and said, Andrew, we've had an emergency. Would you please step out? And they knew, don't disturb me. But it's the expectation that you set. You know, however you set it with your technology and everything else, that is what will happen. So you're the one who is in full control of it. No one else is in control of your technology and when you access it or not, other than the operator. So setting that expectation is really, really important.
0: Okay, so um, you said something a few minutes ago I want to ask you about. So you've been on both sides of this coin. So you talked about the person that's working 72-hour weeks, and they've got investors that they need to answer to, people that are saying, you know, I'd like to come into the office on a more frequent basis or whatever. You've experienced that uh, as somebody running a company, but you've also done a lot of investing. So how do you suggest that entrepreneurs that are taking venture capital or investment manage that? Like I for one wouldn't want to be micromanaged in that way. Uh, I'm sure many other entrepreneurs uh, don't want to, they they need that space to grow their company. Um, how do you suggest that people find the balance and the right investors? First
1: of all, we have to find the right investors in the beginning because the only type that, that want to do those kinds of things are ones that are either you know less comfortable about what they've done, what they've invested in. They may not be a very sophisticated investor, even though they have many millions of dollars. They've you know done well in the stock market. They have real estate assets. Investing in a private placement, mm-hmm. which is what you do when you're in a private company, is a whole other level. <laughs> it is. There are no fail-safes. You could lose every dollar you've put in that company. And so really understanding who it is you're talking to um, makes a big difference. People, you know, they say, Oh, I heard from from so-and-so. I'm like, that's interesting. I said, I don't think they've ever done a private placement. Cause I know that person, I, I might even worked with them in the past, um, in my career. And so I'm like, hmm. you know, I, I think you might want to ask the question, you know, have they actually made a private placement before? Because if they're, if they haven't, um, you know, that will be a different relationship that you're going to have with that investor. And, you know, do you have enough time and bandwidth to be able to manage that? and build your business and grow it the way that you'd like to do. And they, they kind of you know, tend to think it's not a big deal until they actually have that person involved. You have to set the expectation at your first board meeting about the kinds of things you are going, you are willing to do and things you're not willing to do. And you need to know that. They need to know that right out the gate. And some of them may choose not to invest in you, but that's probably a good thing because you're gonna, otherwise you're going to have a really high maintenance relationship that isn't going to work.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. Um, okay, back to the company stuff. So after Proponic's big exit, Mm -hmm. you jump to Simple Logic. Do you want to talk about Simple Logic or should we get right to Sapphire? Because I do want to ask you a bunch about Sapphire.
1: Yeah, um Simple Logic, um I mean a great story. Um I'm very happy for my business partner who's still in the business. Mm -hmm. It's a regulatory, a regulatory document business, if you will. So uh being able to distill legal uh, regulated documents into plain language, so that the consumer institutions understand the risks they're taking on and what they're investing or, or um, what they're buying. Those kinds of things. And it was really about uh, that one was all about infrastructure, so building the right infrastructure. And uh, in that case, you know, um, really about the founder understanding that it was more writers and not account reps that were going to grow that business. It was about you know having more people who had her technical, had some technical depth but that she could teach that had the right mindset. So it's a really great example of that. And grew to quite large. And then uh, Sapphire, which was digital health records in the age when no one knew that they actually owned their own data. So pushing it was like pushing a string up a mountain.
0: Yeah, this <laughs> is an interesting space. I mean, even today. Um, it is. It, what struck me about this company is that it was sort of the world's first to market web-enabled personal healthcare system in the cloud, right? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Personal health record. Uh-huh. Okay. So talk about commercializing a system like this. You talk about pushing this up a mountain. What mm-hmm. was involved and what were some of the most important aspects of commercializing this?
1: Um first of all education. So, you know, as I said, no one and and actually still to today, people don't realize, although they're hearing a lot more and Are more aware of health records, Um, they're not aware that the data that is about me, Andrea Matheson, that resides in any facility, any practitioner, the health practitioner I go to see, that data is mine. They're simply the people that we go to and see and take the data and have it in their system, they're just simply custodians. And that has been from the beginning of time. So that's never changed. But for some reason... (laughs) And you know, again, it's pretty um, pretty usual that around the world, and this is no different than in, in Canada than anywhere else in the world, that you know, because a doctor or somebody of authority in the medical profession says that this is what will happen, this information is mine, I keep your file in my office, and you go, and then you come back again, and I have your file here. We we assume that that's the way has to be there was a whole but,
0: seinfeld episode on this by the way yeah, which was just, exactly. which is such a funny episode it reminds me like the, the chart miss bennis right the doctor. Yeah, yeah. uh anyway so I, I digress go ahead yeah. yeah
1: um so but it is so that i mean that was the first thing and you know my partner is an intensivist a brilliant doctor on waterloo and he you know he knew that that wasn't okay of course i mean doctors know that but they just don't tell you that information and so but what's really interesting is that. You know, nobody understands the usefulness of it and why we are in, you know, and it's a direct result of the fact that we do not have our information, that we are in the shape that we are in as, as, a, uh, as a province, as a, as a uh, country, as uh, many countries, that because you don't have the information, we have all the triplication wastage in the system that we have to do because the information is not there. So, oh, let's start again. Let's try. You know, let's do some more troubleshooting. Let's have an MRI. Let's have a CT scan. Let's let's do all of that. It, it, somehow you have to pay for all of that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it really is interesting, and I couldn't believe. I you know personally, I could not believe how bad it was. I thought, really, I'm a Canadian. We can't possibly be. It can't possibly be this bad. I really didn't believe it. So I spent three months literally doing my own due diligence on it, going, "Let's see, how does this all work?" So understanding. How that little red and white striped, if you have that, keep on, you know, hold on to it because it's so much easier than having a renewal card like we have now. But (laughs) if you've moved to the green one, people think that green little card says so much on it. Let me tell you what it says. In Ontario, it has your picture on it now, has your address, uh, has a nice little authentication. um, uh, So it's not a, a fake one, authentication label. And then guess what it has? Your billing code. It says that Andrea Matheson is eligible for healthcare in the province of Ontario. Billing code 432, whatever it is. That's all it has. It has nothing else. There's nothing else on that. And they swipe it. They go in. They swipe it. What do you, What happens when you swipe your card? Your credit card. They swipe your credit card. They get your number. They know your account. They charge you the amount. And, uh, you know, if I went to Starbucks right now, which I can see outside my window, down on 39 floors, stories below me. They would know that i had a vanilla a tall vanilla latte at the starbucks across the street four minutes ago why is it that we swipe our green card and they know nothing about me it's as if i am a brand new person to ontario and i was just born makes no sense and and, and when you start to realize that and as a ta you know not only as a business person but as a taxpayer you go okay that makes sense now why have we spent so much money because how are you going to connect all these nodes of, of information we have 179 hospitals in ontario uh, somewhere in the order of about 77,000 clinics and about 38,000 practitioners. How do you connect all those people up and have one record that knows that it's Andrea Matheson and she's actually quite ill or not ill, whatever you know the information tells you. So when I did that three months, I could not believe it. And so then I went back and I said, you know what, I'm still not convinced. Google Health, there was Google Health back in the day. They've just resurrected it, but a different version of it this time. But I said, really? Google has all the money in the world. Even back then, they did. I said to Bill, how could it be that Google Health is not going to make it? And he said, Andrea, the reason why they're not going to make it is because I am, the per- I am the doctor that has the medical band on on your hand that says, you know, his name. And as long as that liability is there, there is no way I'm taking the information that you put into a system to use. I can't use that information. He said, in anyways, what you'll see is people talk about talk about how they... Uh, you know, their bowel movements aren't right or they've got, you know, rashes on their skin and the like, rash is purple. And it like it's not useful information because it's not original source data. No different than anything else in the bank. They don't use what you said you spent. They actually take the information from the person that you spent it with. And represent your bank account. So exactly the same. And literally three months later, Google Health shut down because they couldn't get any doctors to use the platform, hmm. even though they'd spent time on putting it together. And thought for sure this was like a it was like a no brainer slam dunk. We're gonna fix the system. So now for you know, full circle, seven years later, eight years later, you see that there's consortiums of people getting together now going, we have to solve this. We're going to solve this. And here's how we're going to solve it and all this. But really what it came down to and what I believe in, which we will not see in my lifetime and likely not in my children's lifetime, but that will just be my prediction. Now you need one record that travels with you anywhere in the world, which is what ours did anywhere in the world, 24 hours a day and is anomalized. So, that, that information, if hacked into, would not go, you know, there's nothing you can do with it. So, that's what we did. And it's also one that requires the information to come from any source, any, it doesn't matter what way the, the information comes in, it gets aggregated into the back and then presented in a proprietary um, framework that um, allows somebody to pull it up on agnostic to any browser and. You know, be able to get through firewalls, which our our um, hospitals are famous for, and it gets through the firewall, and they go, "Wow, that MRI was done last week. I don't need to do one of those. I could just do this instead. Maybe I need a blood test now because it, you know they're presenting with this or whatever else." So it actually helps to save tremendous wastage in the system, and that's what a personal health record is versus a medical, what what people quite often refer to as, "Oh, but I have digital health." when I go to my doctor, he's got a digital system. I said, I said, yes, exactly. It's no different than when we moved from desktop and said, Oh, you know, we had sorry we had paper and we moved to a desktop or a laptop and we said, Oh, let's move that paper off our desk and put it on our screen. It didn't change the information. It just made it, it was just on the screen. Now it was still in the same order. Mm -hmm. The information's still there. Nothing changed. That's what, you know, in a, in an office, a, a health practitioner's office, you get is Those those are discrete pieces of information about Andrea in a digital system. Sure, just no paper, got it. But there's nothing you can do with that information. If she showed up on June the 15th with a broken arm, and then we fixed the arm, and then on June 17th she came back because it was an infection, and then June 19th, that information is just, they're all discrete pieces, and unless you read every one of them, you do not know what happened to Andrea. There's no context provided for that information, and and that exists all over. You know, I'm in downtown Toronto. We know how many hospitals are right off, you know, University Avenue. In fact, you know, Saint Mike's is within two blocks of me. Mm-hmm. They're all working on. They're completely actually disincented to work on the same system. So every hospital in Ontario has a different IT infrastructure. Who in their right mind would ever invest in a business like that? Yeah, no one.
0: It's something like uh, this. I think this is a Canadian stat right off the Sapphire site. So, thousand out of a thousand emergency department visits, three hundred and twenty patients are missing information that keeps them there an extra one point two hours on average. So, in terms of the dent that you guys made since two thousand and nine, where are we now in terms of the centralization and distribution of these records?
1: Mm, not far along. Um, Ontario is not far at all. Um, I, I would. I like to say that Nova Scotia is making the best the best of it. They only have a million in their population, which makes it so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really working hard to do one record. Their system is called One Record, and again, it's thinking about can we have everybody who's getting care in the province of Nova Scotia in one system? And you know, they're actually making inroads on that. Um, they're the furthest ahead, I would say, in Canada. Uh, BC has done some of it. They have pieces of it that are looking good, uh, but they haven't connected, um, so they don't know whether it will work. And Alberta it claims to be the furthest ahead. <laughs> they have the best marketing on it, but I don't. Uh, I would disagree that they have. They don't have a record that is um, one with all data in it. They have records that have some information in it, and then you have to go to a different record for the other information. So again, until we come to something. Uh, and, um, you know, there's lots of room for many players. So, you know, you don't have to have just one, we could have multiple ones, but then they need to speak to each other. And so you go to the States and where it is, you know, definitely a for-profit business. Believe me, the administration gets it there. So they want to be able to say there is one information. And So you have a um, large con- uh, family, actually a family-run business, Cerner Health, who's doing a really great job of vertically integrating all of their facilities into one record. So, and, you know, I guess they could get more market share and have all of America technically. But point is, they've got like, at least, you know, kind of their their leader on the uh, West, uh, West coast of the US. So, you know, something like that is more akin to what we should be looking at as as Canadians, but certainly Ontario, absolutely not. When we've got a a crazy structure of how we fund healthcare in Ontario with all these limbs, you probably heard them Uh, spoken LHIN, which is the local health integration uh, Mm -hmm. network. And I, I refer to it as a local health uh, non-integration network um, because it really gives money, you know, here's here's the the uh, kind of short short form of it. You work in, in 416 but you live in 905, for example. You might live in Ajax, you might live in Barry, something like that. You probably get your care done in 416. But 416 only has a budget for the people who actually live in 416. So guess where, if you get all your care and you live in Ajax and you're in 905, that money for you in 905 stays there but you get your care in 416. So how do you bal- ever balance those books? So if we if we just start there and say that the, the funding doesn't even meet the model of the the people, the inhabitants of the area, how are we ever going to get to the point where we can have one
0: back? So you spent a long time at this, right? You were working on this problem for the better part of mm-hmm. seven years. When you decided to step mm-hmm. away, um, what was going through your mind? Did you, did you sort of feel like this was a business failure in a way, or what else was going on here?
1: Uh, no, no, not at all. I think it's, it's a business that will take longer to come to fruition. So pieces of it have been sold and, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's more work to be done. And, uh, I just think it's an opportunity. I needed to step back to get a different perspective on it. Yeah. I think is is key and sometimes you need to do that so there are lots of founders who think that they have to like grind it out right to the end i'm like no actually there's other decisions you can make (laughs) that probably make more sense for you and certainly stepping back and being able to view it from a board level you know i've done a lot of board work in this area to help people understand how they should be thinking about it i thought I, i can make a bigger impact by going to the top of the funnel and helping people to understand why we shouldn't have academics running our healthcare system, why we shouldn't have the health, you know, I, I really believe firmly, it really should be the minister of finance who probably, and, and I'm not specifically saying any one person, but I mean that, that entity managing the money and how it's being spent, because I think they have a better idea of where we should be investing in, in healthcare. So, you know, that was my approach to to sell the pieces that I, that made sense. And then to be able to help at a higher level. Uh, help the actual thinking behind it.
0: Okay. So we've got a few minutes left. I want to ask you a couple last (laughs) questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, So over 25 years of experience in tech and operations in several business sectors. um, I know you're now working on commercializing an autonomous vehicle for greenhouses. Is that what's next for you?
1: Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. It's been really exciting. We're um, we're literally on that last mile of build for the prototype. We're doing right as we speak right now, doing some learning um, on the greenhouse and the uh, computer visioning and Internet of Things and sensors all working together. So it's pretty exciting. She is referred to as Rebecca. Her name is Rebecca. And um, yeah, so we're literally, I'd say, you know, if you talk to me on Tuesday at about three, we will be be complete. So we've spent um, almost a year to the date of uh, design prototyping, and actually full build. So it will be running. Um, that's fast. It is. And it, it's a dedicated engineering team. They're really great. and But it, that's what it takes. So today, here's the difference. Uh, eight years ago, you could have started a business with an idea. People would, you'd come and you'd say, yeah, I've got this great idea, Adam. You know, what do you think about it? You go, wow, I think that's great. We should do it. We Let's go get some investors. We've had an idea. We'd sell the idea. They'd give us a little bit of money. We'd start working on it. We'd go and get some more money. We'd keep working on it. And it might work or it might not, no longer. We have a really growing, healthy, strong ecosystem in, in Toronto, in Canada. Um, you know, there's claims now that we're bigger than Silicon Valley. I'm not sure that that's true, but it's, we're certainly gaining on them for sure. Um, but what I do know is that you have to build a product you are not going, a sustainable business is not built on ideas or concepts. A sustainable business is built on a product. So it doesn't have to be a perfect product. It does not have to be even the end product, but it has, you have to start somewhere. And so now to everyone's benefit, I really believe this investors will ask to see what the product looks like. And until you've done your good work of, you know, what's happened is all of the things you would have done in the early stages, eight years ago, you now do before you go looking for money. So you do good things like. Oh, you're building an autonomous vehicle. Wow, that sounds fascinating. What about all these things? Anybody done this before? No. Stop. Stop right now. Get it all out of your head. File the patents. Like, there are certain things you have to do now that you didn't really have to do before because there were fewer people doing it. Mm. There's more people doing it now. So we have more people. There's more access to capital. That's great. But they're also choosier. So why not just do the work and be in the best position possible when you go looking for your money? And so this is really the case of this. It's great, we've had people trying to throw money at us. And, I, I, and I, you know, one of the hardest things is say, you know what, not ready yet, but we'll, we will be ready. And when we are, we'll keep you, on, you know, in mind and, and come back to you then. And you know, they're really appreciative of it, first of all, because they thought, oh, oh, yeah, you're right, I guess I need to see it. But more importantly, I think the team needs to see it. <laughs> and it's not about the investors, it's about the people building it. And I think you really see the passion, what I've seen is that you see the passion and commitment of people when you're pulling something together on a shoestring and really bootstrapping it for the right reasons to make it the best you can be under the current circumstances. This is not going to be the end game, but it's certainly the beginning game. And the stronger that uh, front end is, it's uh, really, I, I said, has a lot to do with how how the uh, end exit, what the story is.
0: Well, Tuesday at 3pm, I may have to reconnect with you. <laughs>
1: it's going to be an exciting day.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. La- last question. Uh, when you reflect back, uh, yeah, I know you've got numerous successes, a few big exits. But uh, I'm curious, w- was there like a, a failure or a moment that kind of stuck out and maybe bruised your ego in a way that you saw, you sort of felt humbled and maybe more self-aware and and I guess later came out a different person because of it? Was there something like that?
1: I know after uh, Proponix, I mean, it was an amazing time and I wouldn't have missed it for the world, but at the end, it was the first time in my career I really felt I needed to take a break. Um, I just, I, I, used every ounce of energy to get through that and, and and do all the good things to be happy while I was doing it and all that. And it was great, but I never, and I never thought I needed that. So I'd always say, no, I don't need a break. No, I can just, you know, and I don't mean that after what I just told you, I don't mean that I kept going. I did, I went, I would take vacations. My family traveled with me. We were, uh, you know, I was traveling on three continents all the time. People were with me all the time. We were having a really good time, really trying to make the most of the opportunity. But at the same time, I've personally pushed away from myself to say, I don't really need to have some extra time. And I was thinking about the next thing and whatever. And then just one day I just went, I think my body just said to me, No, Andrew, you know what? You're not going to do anything today. And I just sat down (laughs) and for about three months, did virtually nothing. And I looked at that, I kept saying, why am I like this? Why am I feeling like this? But that's your body knows. And I'm a huge believer in it. Like it knows. And it just, it wasn't, I wasn't physically ill. There was nothing wrong with me. I still got, you know, went for walks and to the gym and all those things, but I didn't feel like sticking my head and my brain into anything. And I would try and it would just kind of reject it. out and say, nope, nope, you're not going to learn that. And I didn't understand that for about 30 days and went to my daughter and said, is there something on me? He goes, uh, no, you're perfectly fine. It's actually that your unconscious is now catching up with your conscious brain and saying to you, you actually need some downtime. And so I was feeling like I was afraid, okay. Why didn't I just keep going to the next one? Because you hear everybody, you know, it's just like, go to the next one. There's another something else fun. You know, there's so many more opportunities. People were coming to me with new ideas and things they wanted. And I just, none of them we're excited to me. and i'm I'm an optimist. I'm always, you know, I can I can talk anybody into anything because I'm like, wow, there's so there's some potential here. We can do this. You just take a piece of it, you know, whatever else. But I could not get myself. And I really felt it was it took it bruised my ego because I thought, why am I doing this? But no one else is doing it. But what I didn't realize is that there's lots of people doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, And one of the things, you know, again, that I say to entrepreneurs that I'm telling you, I've been where you are right now and you're going to be at it again. And the next time you see it in somebody else, you need to go to them and say, it's okay. I've been there with you. Like we don't talk about those things. And I'm really trying to, you know, bring that out in the new entrepreneurs. I think the sooner they reach out and, and I actually, you know, the more I say to people, I'm giving you the permission to reach out to me, they will reach out even if it's like 10 o'clock at night and I'm okay with that because I didn't have anybody or I didn't feel like I had anybody because I wasn't doing that before. And I think it's really important. Uh, And that was my way of saying, okay, that was, I needed that break. And, uh, and that's, that's actually a positive thing versus it being, or are you feeling like you're a failure?
0: I appreciate you sharing that story. I think other listeners will as well. So I'll, I'll give you the last word quickly. Where do you want to point listeners to, to find out more about you, Andrea, more about what you're working on?
1: Oh uh, well, we're going to be. Uh, my, my LinkedIn is is there. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. It'll be great. Always encouraging entrepreneurs to reach out and uh, happy to help where I can. But farming revolution dot com no dot ca farmingrevolution.ca you can read about what Green Earth does there and that's it gives you some inkling into what we're doing but it is um, really a large play to help with the issues that we're talking about in generating enough food sustainable food for the entire world so it's a a really fun uh, adventure that I've embarked on
0: okay well I mean this has been a real pleasure for me really enjoyed uh, talking to you and uh, maybe we'll do a round two but thanks for coming on that's
1: amazing on. I love it thanks Adam
0: alright we'll talk soon thanks Andrea talk soon. cheers bye thank you for listening and being a part of E2 E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase
1: building subscription businesses for retail brands visit Scriberbase.com for more info Indochino made to measure suits and shirts at a great price more at Indochino.com and WeWork WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.